filled full. There were once 5,000 tired and hungry, and probably very grumpy, people sitting on a hillside wanting their dinner. They'd come to hear Jesus that day. They came before breakfast, stayed all morning, all afternoon, and way past dinner. No one had meant to be out there that long, but that's how it was, listening to Jesus, as if time didn't exist. People could listen to Jesus for hours, and on this particular day, that's just what they did. But they hadn't brought enough food, and they couldn't just go and buy themselves a burger and fries to go, because, of course, they were in the middle of nowhere with no shops or restaurants. Besides, that kind of food wasn't invented yet. What would they do? Jesus' friends had an idea. Let's send everyone home for dinner. They don't need to go, Jesus said. You can give them something to eat. Did Jesus want them to travel all the way to town and buy food for everyone? Jesus' friends panicked. But we don't have enough money. What food do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. Now, there was a little boy in the crowd. He had brought a lunch that his mother had made for him that morning. He looked at his five loaves and two fish. It wasn't much. Well, <coughs> not nearly enough for 5,000, but it was all he had. I have some, he said. Jesus' friends laughed when they saw his little lunch. That's not nearly enough, they said. But they were wrong. Jesus knew it didn't matter how much the little boy had. God would make it enough, more than enough. Jesus said, bring me what you have. And so the little boy gave Jesus his lunch. Jesus winked at the little boy and whispered in his ear, watch. How in the world will Jesus feed everyone with just that? Jesus' friends said, because they thought it was impossible. But Jesus knew the one who made all the fish in the oceans. And Jesus knew the one who in the very beginning had made everything out of nothing at all. How hard would something like this be for someone like that? Jesus took the little boy's lunch, looked up to heaven and thanked his father. Then Jesus gave the little lunch back to his friends. As Jesus' friends started to hand out the food, do you know what? It was the strangest thing, no matter how much they broke off. There was always more, and more, and more. Enough for 5,000. Everyone ate as much as they wanted. A second helpings, third helpings, even fourths, until they were full, and still there were leftovers. Well, Jesus did many miracles like this. Things people thought couldn't happen, that weren't natural. But it was the most natural thing in all the world. It's what God had been doing from the beginning, of course. Taking the nothing and making it everything. Taking the emptiness and filling it up. Taking the darkness and making it light. Good morning. Glad you uh, could be with us here on this cold, snowy uh, morning. And I'm especially glad for our tech people who can do the live streaming. And uh, welcome to those of you who are watching online and down at F3 as well. Um, it's a good morning. If you are a guest with us, uh, 
Glad you're here. Glad you're joining us. Uh, at the end of this service, we have a, a gift for you right outside the um, doors here in the Welcome Center, so please stop by there. I'd love to greet you and, and to give that gift to you as well. Have you noticed that um, sometimes our, our, our best uh, configured plans just never materialize? Um, they, they get they get hijacked some way with those little interruptions of life. Um, you're, you're preparing a, a, a special meal for the family, and halfway into the preparation process, the electricity goes off. Or you're, uh, you, you've been planning this three-day getaway, and you can't wait because you really need that three-day getaway. And um, the night before, one of the kids gets sick. Or you've looked at your schedule and Wednesday night is the only night out of your schedule that you have free. And you are looking forward to it. You've been run ragged. You get home. Uh, you find that easy chair. You're about to crack open that, that historical novel that you, you're right in the midst of. And all of a sudden the doorbell rings and unexpected company shows up. You know, just the little interruptions uh, of life that are, uh, can be so frustrating. Um, and you, you, you sometimes wish that you could just be, um, be on a, a, a deserted island all by yourself, just, just to vacate life altogether. Or at the very least, you want to unplug the phone, pull down the shades, lock the door, and for good measure, put a sign out in front of the door that says, rabid dog, stay away, something like that. Well, I think that might have been a little bit how the disciples must have felt. Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 30, begins this way. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. All that they had done and taught. Now what's the context there? What, what were they doing? What had they done? What had they taught? Well, we'd have to go back to the beginning of the chapter in Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 7. And uh, we read that he had summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs that, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And verse 13 says, They went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and uh, were anointing many uh, with oil, the sick people, and they were healing them. I mean, these guys were busy. They were involved in something that must have been extremely exciting. Sent out in pairs, and man, they were knocking them dead or raising them up, whatever the, the, the metaphor might be. I mean, they were preaching their heart out. The demons were responding to them. They were casting them boogers out. They were healing people. I mean, they were, they were busy, busy guys. And um, Jesus, when they come back and they report all this stuff to Jesus, Jesus recognized it's been a very, very hectic and busy time, so... Um, he's got a plan. He has a plan uh, to help them out, to get the disciples away from the maddening cry. Look at verse 31. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place. Some of your translations might say a deserted place, um, a, a solitary place, a quiet place. Come away uh, by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. 
And they went away in the boat to a secluded, solitary, quiet, deserted. It's repeated twice for emphasis, that word. They went away in the boat to a secluded, quiet, solitary place by themselves. Ah, <laughs> relief at last. How nice. Notice it said that they didn't even have time to eat. Their schedules had been so full of this ministry. They had been so busy, so involved. And that secluded place just sounded like, man, that was what was exactly needed. Jesus was concerned about his disciples. And so they were going to this place of solitude, or so they thought, right? Verse 33, it says, And the people saw them going, and they recognized them, and they ran there together on foot from all the cities, and they got there ahead of them. Now, can you imagine what, what, what would have been going through the minds of the disciples? Their boat lands, and they walk over the first little knoll, and there, <laughs> are you kidding me? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I, if, if they were like me, I'll tell you what would have been going, well, I can't tell you what would be going through my mind. It would be nice to tell you what was going on, you know, with a, with a sermon. I can't say that, but what do you think was going through the mind of Jesus? Well, we know because of the next verse, verse 34, it says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw the large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. He saw them as sheep that needed a shepherd. They didn't have one. He saw these people and it just tugged at his heart. It says there were 5,000 people, men, probably add another five, six, seven, eight thousand, you know, women, children. It was a massive crowd. And somehow Jesus had that ability to look into their faces, this mass sea of humanity, and it just broke his heart. And he began to teach them. He began to talk to them about truth, about life. They were, he said, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, how tragic is that? I grew up on a farm in Nebraska, as you know. I raised pigs and cattle, and God bless my dad that we never had sheep. If you've been here at Fellowship over the years, you know I've shared this before you with you before, the five Ds of sheep, right? They're dirty, they're dumb, they're diseased, they're defenseless, and boy, are they dependent. That oily wool is like a magnet for, for the dirt and the grime. Um, and dumb, you know, put one sheep over the edge of a cliff, they'll all follow. Get one in a, in a river to drown, they'll all drown. Susceptible to disease, defenseless. I don't know of any natural defenses of sheep. You know, it's, it, it just invites you know, somebody to come and, you know, eat them. And dependent, they need a shepherd. And Christ looked out over these thousands of people and he saw people who were dirty and diseased by sin, dumb and ignorant to the truth of God, defenseless against the, the ravenous wolves of false teachers. They were, they were in such need of a, 
of a good shepherd to depend upon. He saw people and their desperate need, his compassionate concern. And so Jesus' heart goes out to these people, and he teaches them. He teaches them. He doesn't think of his own needs. He, he cared for the people. Compassionate concern of Jesus. Now, in sharp contrast to this heart of Jesus is, of course, we're going back to the disciples again, and uh, well, look at verse 35 and 36. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, <clears throat> this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. <laughs> Don't be fooled for a moment. The, this, this feigned uh, um, care for these people. Uh, uh, Jesus, it's, um, you know, they would have had watches. They, you know, it's getting a little late here. And don't you think it's time? You know, they're probably hungry as their own stomachs are roaring. Don't you think it's time to send them away? You know, shouldn't we be concerned about the people? Um, they were annoyed. <laughs> Make no mistake about it. Remember it said earlier, they hadn't even had time to eat. They were going to this place to get a little R&R, &R, to be secluded, to find that solitary time that said by themselves. And, and now there's this thousands and thousands of people. They were peeved. They were annoyed. And they probably reacted exactly as I would have reacted. I, I think Jesus is time to send them on their way. Um, if what Jesus had been doing that day, preaching to these people, ministering to their needs when they should have been secluded in their solitary place, if that annoyed the disciples, well, what he said to them when they mentioned sending them away probably frustrated them all the more. Look at the first part of verse 37. He answered them and said, you give them something to eat. Lord, don't you think it's time to, to send these people away? I mean, they're hungry. They need to go and get something to eat. And he said, you give them something to eat. Now, all we have is the words. I don't know what the tone of, of Jesus would have been like. So it's only conjecture. You know, he could have said uh, with a twinkle in his eye, almost with a smile, you give them something to eat. Or maybe it was just a, you know, a flat look on his face, uh, uh, no emotion. He just said, you feed them. Now, why did Jesus answer that way? What do you think was going through his mind? You feed them. Well, let's not forget, where had the disciples been in the earlier context? Man, they were, they were making waves and power of, of, of God. They were casting out demons. They were preaching repentance. They were healing people, man. They were having a time of their life. They come back to Jesus and reporting all these things. I would almost suspect they were talking over one another. Yeah, but when we were at this village, oh, you should have seen what happened here. Oh, well, that's nothing, Peter. You should have seen what we did. You know what happens when there's a little bit of success that seems to happen in our life, or at least, at least we're susceptible to this? It's called pride. It's called pride. Um, remember the story of the 
woodpecker pecking away at the dead tree, just working away at that dead tree, and all of a sudden, he's not aware of it, all of a sudden the, the clouds come over, it gets dark, there's thunder, and all of a sudden a lightning bolt comes and crashes and hits that dead tree and splinters it to millions of pieces, knocks the poor woodpecker away, and he catches himself, and then he flutters off to his feathered friends crying out, did you see what I just did? Did you see what I just did? Now, don't forget, we just read it in passing, but back there in verse 7, when, God, when Jesus sent them out in pairs, it says that he gave them authority. He gave them authority to do these things. And so here are the disciples coming off a wildly successful ministry, and now they're faced with an impossible task, and Jesus tells them, you feed them. You do it. What was Jesus up to telling his disciples to feed these people? I think two things. One is to get their eyes off of themselves and their own growling stomachs, get their eyes off their own needs and put it on the mass of people. That was Jesus' always thought. It was always the people. They were sheep without a shepherd. You feed them. It's like Jesus is saying, don't you, did, did you look into their eyes? Do you see the kids down there? Do you see these people? They, they, they followed on ahead. They got to this place ahead of us because they wanted to hear our teaching. Don't you see their needs? They're hungry. I think he wanted them to be aware that there's other needs just beside their own. But second of all, I think Jesus was trying to get their attention to say, don't you know who I am? I know you can't feed them. But don't you know who can? I think Jesus wanted them to come to a point where they looked them in the eye and said, Lord, we, we can't feed them. But you can. Seems like it's just like God to allow us to be in oftentimes situations impossible as they are purposefully impossible so that we will learn to say but but i can't ah but you can unfortunately that was not the disciples response we keep reading in verse 37 it says and they said to him shall, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat are you kidding me jesus what do you mean go feed them we can't do this. And there was no, but you can afterwards. We can't do this. And again, we don't have the video of, of the look in Jesus' face, the, maybe the heavy sigh that he sighed. What we do have, starting in verse 38, is how he took charge. Let's, let's keep reading that. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they had those five loaves, two fishes, the little boy there that had that, and he commanded all the, them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and, and of fifties. Remember it said on the green grass. He divided them up in groups of hundreds and fifties. Verse 41, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. 
And he divided up the, the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. Uh, key word, all. They all ate and were satisfied. And it says they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also the fish. And there were 5,000 men, including maybe thousands of others, who ate the loaves. Um, wow. There's Jesus doing what Jesus does. There's the good shepherd taking care of the sheep. He not only took care of them spiritually as he taught them and loved them and brought them to the truth of God, he sees their physical needs and he takes care of that as well. What a kind, compassionate Jesus. Unfortunately, it went right over the disciples. Let's keep reading. Verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. <laughs> It's almost like Jesus knew the disciples were worthless at this point. Look, guys, just get in the boat and go. <laughs> I'll take care of the crowd. And Jesus sent them away, I'm sure, in the gracious, loving way that he always would. Verse 46, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. He was alone on the land and it says, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the, the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Interesting little phrase, isn't it? He intended to pass by them. Again, Jesus was wanting always to teach the disciples, um, trust me. But they're straining at the oars, they're in their little... Uh, kind of mindset of we, we got to handle this, we got to take care of this, we're, we're salted men of the sea, come on, let's keep working hard at this thing. He intended to pass by them, but, verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him, and they were terrified. And so immediately he spoke with them and, and said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And once again, Jesus reveals his creative power, his compassionate concern. Notice how the disciples went from being totally terrified, though, to something else. Look at verse 51. He got into the boat with them, the wind stopped, and now it says they were completely, utterly undone, astonished, amazed completely terrified to now just being stupefied, just utterly amazed. Because verse 52 says, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Very important. They had not gained any, and most of our translations will use the word understanding. I think the word literally has this idea of connecting the dots. That's, you could say, they, they, had, they had not pieced it together. They had not gained insight from what? From what had just taken place, the incident of the loaves. They gained no understanding, but their heart 
was hardened. Now, two questions arise. The first question is, um, what insight, what understanding should they have gained? It said they gained no insight. Well, what should they have gained? Well, they should have gained insight about, about who they were in the midst with, uh, the, Jesus. They should have gained insight that this is the Son of God. Caleb last week preached from a previous pas uh, passage in chapter 4 of Mark of the, of the uh, storm at sea. He's sleeping in the boat, remember? And peace be still, instantly calm. And that key question in chapter 4 was, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's the key question. Who is this? Well, they should have gained some insight from that story, but certainly when they saw five loaves and two fishes feed thousands of people, come on, guys, like, what, what gives here? This is the Son of God. Nobody can do this. This is the powerful Son of God. And not only that, just the whole setting of that, that feeding scene should have opened their eyes. He said he was the good shepherd. He saw the people like sheep. And it says he, he made them sit down in, in what? The green pastures. Psalm 23, what does it say? The Lord, Jehovah, is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Man, if these guys were thinking at all, good Jewish boys that they were, these, these passages in the Old Testament was filled with them, of, of Messiah, the good shepherd. He, he makes his people lie down in green pastures. Another one uh, in the prophets, Ezekiel, says that I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he'll feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. He's talking about the Messiah. I will make them and, and the places around my hill a blessing. And as for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you're men, but I'm your God, declares the Lord God. Their God does this. What insight, what, what should they have understood what should they have pieced together? What, when they connected the dots, what should they have seen? He's the Son of God. We're in the presence of the Holy One. This is God. But their hearts were hardened. Why were their hearts hardened? That's the second question. What insight should they have gained? Well, this is God. But maybe the more important question is, why did they miss it? What had hardened their hearts so they missed it? Now let's not forget the original problem that they were faced with. Back there in verse 31, they'd been working all hard in ministry and tired but excited, but it says so much so that they hadn't even eaten. <laughs> what was their problem? Well, they were hungry. They were tired. They were concerned about themselves was what the problem was. They heard the growling of their own stomachs, the ache in their own bones, the weariness of what they had just done for God, I will remind you. We did this for God. And they're tired. And they're self-centered. And it's always the case that self-interest will always displace the interests of the Savior. In spite of his own hunger and his own tiredness, Jesus spent hours 
ministering to the people, both spiritually and physically. And the disciples, well, as we see so often in the gospel accounts of the disciples, they're, they're living their life, as someone said, cafeteria style, self-service only. It was a sad ending, was it not, to an incredible day. It begins with, yeah, a desire to get away to that secluded place, but man, the people and the excitement of the crowd that just wanted to get more of Jesus. And, and he teaches them, I mean, words from the master to sit on that hill and listen to Jesus again and, and then to watch the miracle unfold. But, but such a sad ending when the disciples are terrified and then utterly astonished because they had gained no understanding over the incident of the loaves. There's a lot of applications I think we could have <laughs> from this story. And all the good ones are about Jesus. And uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about what we can learn from Jesus. But in our time remaining, I, I do want to share a few things about the disciples that might be equally instructive to us. Things like this. We can easily look to ourselves in pride instead of viewing ourselves as simply a conduit for his powerful working. A conduit for his powerful working. Look what we did, the disciples say. Look what we accomplished. They were all excited, and rightly so. I mean, they had cast out demons. They had healed people. They had preached knockout sermons and calls of repentance to these people. And they must have been wildly successful. But that success can lead to, oh, look what we have done. The old woodpecker mentality. I had a friend of mine years ago. He was a traveling evangelist who would, he'd always carry a straw in his pocket. Always carry a straw. Because he always wanted to remind him, himself, he said, this is, this is all I am right here. He would have masses of people. He could preach before thousands of people, but he always carried that straw because he said, you know, all I am is a, is a hollow tube to deliver the goods, the goods of Jesus to hurting hearts. Oh, and he would always say, I got to be flexible too. <laughs> I've had the privilege of working here over three decades to work with people who exude this humility, this understanding of uh, not I, but Christ in me. Charlie Spencer's been on our team here for 17 years. As you know, he's going to be retiring at the end of April. Um, Charlie has impacted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children and, and their parents. You know why Charlie has impacted so many people? Because it's not about Charlie Spencer. Charlie knows it's about Jesus. That's all there is. That following month, the month of May, John Morrison, after 29 years, is going to be retiring. I don't know of anybody who's impacted more people at FBC than John Morrison. And uh, do you know why John Morrison has impacted so many people? Because he knows it's not about him. A humble guy who knows it's, it's Christ in him that is going to make a difference in people's lives. I could go through the whole list of the men and women on our staff who have had that attitude. 
There's not a haughty woodpecker in the bunch. <laughs> There's a second thing I think we can learn from the disciples, and that is that we can easily ignore the predicament of others instead of responding to compassion with an, a compassion, concern, attitude. It's so easy to begin to look at ourselves and our own needs. And when Jesus said, you feed them, and their response is, let them get their own food. That, it's pretty revealing, isn't it? Let them go into the villages and let them go buy their own food. The disciples wanted the people to leave, when in reality what the people needed was to be loved. And the good shepherd knew that, but the disciples missed it. It, it is so easy when we're focused on ourselves to, to miss the predicament the needs of other people. That's what a preoccupation of our own needs is going to do. You know, we've got a couple of uh, community groups here at Fellowship who, without fanfare, without tooting their own horn, a couple of our community groups have taken upon themselves to help resettle an Afghan refugee family in our community. They're going through all the work, they're setting up a house, they're taking care of it and the needs, uh, working through um, uh, Samaritan's Purse, and, um, and we'll be resettling in the next week or so an Afghan refugee family. They don't have to do that. I know these families. They're busy. They've got plenty of other stuff to do. But they happen to see a need, and they happen to hear from the Holy Spirit, and they're going to meet that need. There's a third thing we can learn from these disciples and that is, we can easily focus on our circumstances and then push the panic button instead of looking at problems as opportunities for God to work, for opportunities for God to show up. When confronted with the challenges of the hungry thousands of people, um, the disciples panicked. But 200 denarii can go to feed this people. I mean, that's a whole year's wages. Where are we going to get that? We can't do this. Send them away. And so oftentimes that self-focus on our own needs blinds us to the person and power of Jesus Christ right in our midst who has that authority and that divine ability to creatively meet the need. But it's, it's like he's the last resort. We can't do this, so panic. What are we going to do? How many times possibly does our, again, self-focus get us to lose sight of the presence and power of God or the opportunities to see God show up, an opportunity to, to help some Afghan refugee family or, or a missionary overseas, and yet... You look at your own budget and realize, well, there's some things I need or want, and it's just not going to fit into our budget. Opportunities to participate in a, in a community group, but uh, it's just, I just soon stay home and in that easy chair in front of the TV. I've got to take care of myself. Missed opportunities to see the, the needs of others because we're blinded by our own. And, and maybe even more tragic than that, blinded to 
the, the ways God shows up all the time in our life. I mean, every day there's something that God is doing in our life and we can just be blind to it. And he still does it. He still shows up. Uh, the, the home that we live in, the food that we're eating, the clothes on our back, the friends that we have, the family, the situations of life, the many, many good blessings that we have and, and we just kind of forget. What things have maybe happened to us this week that we could look back on where if we really took a look at it to say, you know, that was God. <laughs> what impossible situations have you found yourself in where God is saying, you feed them, and you've backed away and saying, I, I can't, but, but you can, and then trust him to show up. The call to, unlo to love an unlovable spouse, I can't, but God, I know you can through me. The call to, to tithe when our resources are cut short, I can't, but you can. The call to befriend that unfriendly coworker, Lord, please. I can't, but I know you can through me. Our spiritual hearts can be hardened when we're focused on our own self and own needs, our own interests and not the interests of Jesus. Leads me to a fourth thing that we can learn from these disciples. We can easily forget Jesus, marginalize him, instead of giving him preeminence in our life. So easy to forget Jesus. I think it's one of the most frustrating things in my spiritual walk. Been a Christian ever since I was a little kid. I mean, 60 plus years. <laughs> I I forget more than I remember, it seems like, about what God has done in my life. It's easy to do. I was reading the other day from that uh, wonderful 19th century um, Baptist pastor, Charles Spurgeon. Um, it's, 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 worth, it's worth a read. It's worth a listening to in his uh, devotional morning to evening. So I wanted to share it with you in that kind of old Victorian language of uh, 150 years ago. It touched my heart. He said, it seems then that, that Christians may forget Christ. There could be no need for this loving exhortation if there were not a fearful supposition that our memories might prove treacherous. Nor is it this a bare uh, supposition. It is, alas, too well confirmed in our experience, not as a possibility, but as a lamentable fact. It appears almost impossible that those who have been redeemed by the blood of the dying Lamb and loved with an everlasting love by the eternal Son of God, should forget the gracious Savior. But if startling to the ear, it is, alas, too apparent to the eye to allow us to deny this crime. Forget him who never forgot us? Forget him who poured his blood forth for our sins? Forget him who loved us even to death? Can it be possible? Yes, 
It is not only possible, but conscience confesses that it is too sadly a fault with all of us that we suffer him to be but a warefaring man tearing but for a night. He whom we should make an abiding tenant of our memories is, is but a visitor therein. The cross where one would think that memory would linger and unmindfulness would be, be an unknown intruder is desecrated by the, by the feet of forgetfulness. Does not your conscience say this is true? Do you not find yourselves forgetful of Jesus? Some, some creature steals away your heart and you are unmindful of him upon whom your affections ought to be set. Some little bit of earthly business engrosses your attention when you should fix your eyes steadily upon the cross. It is the incessant turmoil of the world, the, the constant attraction of earthly things which takes away our soul from Jesus Christ. And while memory too well preserves a poisonous weed, it suffereth the rose of Sharon to wither. Let us charge ourselves to bind a heavenly forget-me-not about our hearts for Jesus, our beloved. And whatever else we let slip, let's hold fast to him. Words that are as good today as they were 150 years ago. The Apostle Paul said, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. One application of that is, remember what God has done. When, when Moses was leading the people in the promised land after 40 years of wilderness wandering, Deuteronomy 8 says, this charge by Moses, when you enter the land to possess it, and all these good things happen to you, and you build your homes, and you you, you fill your stomachs with all the food and all the wealth and everything. Don't forget Jehovah, he says. Remember the Lord. Because we are so prone to forget. Well, one more. One more thing that we can learn from the disciples. It's a positive statement. More we can trust Jesus and experience his blessing. Or... We can forget them, do our own thing, and go hungry. That's a choice we make every day. Live dependently upon him as the sheep that we are. And as we do, experience the basketfuls. How many basketfuls were left over when Jesus did the uh, miracle? Remember what it said? How many were left over? Twelve. How many disciples were there? Twelve. Hmm. You think Jesus wasn't making a statement? You guys are hungry? Well, here's a whole basketful for you. And I love just how Jesus took over there in verse 38 and, and through 44 and the, the results of this bountiful blessing. As one wag put it, where God guides, God always provides. Um, as Paul said in Ephesians 3, he is able to do far more exceeding abundantly beyond that we could ever ask or think according to the power that mightily works within us. It's the way God does things. And Christ demonstrated that compassionate concern for the sheep without a shepherd. And he met that need in his power, in his grace, in his mercy. Without oversimplifying it, I think we could say the Christian life is all about learning to say, I can't but you can 
and turning to him and experience then the basketfuls of blessings. That's a Christian life. God delights to give us basketfuls of blessings when we say, I can't, but man, I know you. I've been in the boat. I've seen what you do. I've got a world full of I can'ts, but I got one God who's an I canner. <laughs> and when we put our trust in Him, all those I can'ts turn into opportunities for God to bring blessing into our lives, to see His powerful hand work. And it's an overflowing blessing to the church as they witness that in our own lives and to a world who desperately needs to know there's a good shepherd. And he'll take care of us. Would you bow your head, please, in prayer? Father, may it ever be on our lips that I can't, but you can. Help me to see you in the daily circumstances of and walk of, of my life. And help me not to forget. If it means maybe at the end of the day or end of the week, picking up a pen and a piece of paper and just thinking for even if it's 10 minutes and jot down, this is where God showed up. Lord, um, little habits of the heart like that, little disciplines of grace can help my memory, help me to get off myself and focus on you and, and see the needs of others and trust you and that I can be a, a straw, um, a conduit of your grace and mercy. That I can pass along your compassionate concern, your love, your, your wonderful message of salvation to people who need it. And in the process, walk away with an abundance of joy and peace, a basket full of of blessing. That's the kind of God you are. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.